On today's show, we have Pooja Duramshi. She's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University here in British Columbia. Her research and teaching interests are in the area of teacher education, critical literacies, and culturally sustaining pedagogies, which of course we'll explain throughout this podcast. Pooja has been such an incredible mentor to me over the past three-ish years. We've co-taught together, collaborated on research projects, and we're currently in the process of co-authoring an article together. As an independent scholar, Pooja is also currently writing a book about critical literacies in education. I'm super proud of her and I can't wait to read it. I believe it'll be published in the new year, but I will keep all of you posted. Um, I've learned a lot from her over the past few years and I promise that we all have a lot more to learn from her. Um, Beyond that, Pooja, she has such an incredible work ethic. She's also super cool and chic and every time that I see her, I'm so envious of her outfit. So without further ado, here is Pooja Duramshi. Thank you Thanks for being for here. Me. It's also just nice to have an excuse to have coffee with you outside <laughs> of my work. So I know this about you, but um, for those listening, I think it would be important to rewind just a little bit um, to the beginning of your journey, because I think it's important to know how you decided that teaching was the career path for you and what steps you took to get where you are today. Uh, sure, yeah. So I had a bit of a non-traditional path into teaching. I did my undergraduate degree in business, in business administration, mm-hmm. and um I didn't enjoy my undergraduate program at all, but I just thought that's what you do. You yeah. just, you know, skip as many classes as you can, and you just get by, and you get a job after. So that's what I did. <laughs> I got a job at a very um, large technology company um, as an analyst, and I thought, okay, like, I'm on the right path. Like, I scored this great job, uh, and, you know, within a few months, I was like, ugh, this can't be it. This can't be Um, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It was just my days were full of meetings and more meetings Mm -hmm. and spreadsheets and everybody being panicked and I didn't know what was going on. I just didn't even know the product I was even representing. I'd never even seen it. To me, it was like this abstract idea and I just didn't enjoy it and after a year and a half, I had a great mentor at that company. It was at IBM and um, Mm She said, you know, you're such a people person. Maybe if we move you into a different role. So I th- I tried a different role. A year later, I was like, nope, still not for me. I don't think I can do corporate. I can't do nine to five. I just, it's not for me. So I had always wanted to go into teaching. But in my family, it was nobody in my family um, is, in, ed- is um, in education or has been an educator. Are they in business? Everybody's in business. Okay. So most of my family who's in India are all entrepreneurs have businesses. Mm. Um, it was just kind of who our family was. So when I told my parents I wanted to go back to teacher's college, they didn't really understand. Um, and they thought, why would I leave such um, such a good job um, at such a big company to, to pursue something mm. like that? So I kept looking and I came across this program in, in New York City, which you could um, you could earn your um, your teaching degree, uh, and you it was subsidized by the city oh, of nice. New York. So I, uh, I just on a whim, I kind of applied for it, and I remember being on vacation with my friends, and I'm sitting in the corner of this house, <laughs> and I'm working on it, and my friends are all like partying on the side, and I'm like, no, I need to get this done. And one of my best friends looked it over for me, and she's really good at wordsmithing, and we sent it off, and um, 
Yeah, I got the letter back a few months later that I got accepted. So I packed up all my stuff. Oh I quit my job. This is you were in Toronto at the time. I was right? in Toronto at the time, and I, um, yeah, I had a, I had a deep connection to New York City, which mm-hmm. is where I moved because um, that's where my cousins uh, lived when we were growing up. So my parents in the summer would sort of either our cousins would come to us in Toronto or we would go to them in the summer uh, to, in, to New York, and they're from the Bronx. Oh, and nice. um, Yeah, so we used to spend the whole summer, like two months in the Bronx, and um, it was just kind of like a different world from where I was from, and I always wanted to come back, so it was kind of like serendipitous that I ended up back in New York City, and, yeah. and I actually ended up back in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, you lived in the Bronx when you were teaching in New York? No, I didn't live in the okay. Bronx, which we can talk about okay, later, okay. about... You know, some of the feelings I have when I look backwards in terms of what I did, mm-hmm. in terms of when we think about like teaching models, mm-hmm. I don't know if I necessarily agree with the way I, um, the way I went about it. At the time, I didn't really know better, and I didn't. I thought I was, you know, like most teachers, well intentioned and trying to do good. Mm-hmm. But the more I've reflected back on it, the more I wonder: do do students, especially in severely underserved neighborhoods do they really need commuter teachers coming Mm. in and out who don't understand the issues of the community in a deep authentic way I just wonder how much service that's doing Mm -hmm. to them or how much is perpetuating um, sort of the narrative that's already been told about neighborhoods like the Bronx so that's been my own reflective piece Mm -hmm. so yeah um, I was a teacher I did um, I was a at the same school in in the South Bronx for for years, and I taught um, middle school, so six, seven, eight, okay. uh, primarily. Tough year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> English language arts okay. and um, social studies mm-hmm. and the humanities. I loved my time there. Mm. I it was definitely some tough years because it's just um, you know in grade six, seven, and eight they're not really interested that much like mm-hmm. in like in academics like it's more about fitting in and belonging and so there's a lot and there's a lot of changes happening on the hormonal level yeah, right? oh my goodness. so you're kind of do seeing not take it me back there for your eyes and you're like <laughs> wow but no we did a lot of great stuff together and I had with the students I would say for the most part we had such a great time mm-hmm. it was the challenge was more I think to me when I step back like the just like this, this structure of education and like this high stakes testing environments, to me, those were more problematic that I didn't have much control over. Mm-hmm. And I was finishing up my master's in New York City. I went to City College in Harlem and I had one professor who was just so encouraging and I had uh, mentioned to her, I was thinking about doing another master's and she said, why another master's? Why don't you do a PhD? And I said, what? Like, <laughs> I could never do a PhD. And she's like, no, we need more women and we need more women of color doing their doctorate degrees and like and then shaping the next generation of mm-hmm. teachers so she kind of planted that seed and then again with like you know the doctorate admissions they're on a very tight timeline like once you miss that timeline for yeah. the year so i thought okay might as well just try and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> None of us did. No, I, do. I, I don't think I even knew what a doctorate degree was. I had no idea when I applied. Yeah, I just thought, okay, it's a terminal degree. Mm. It's the thing after the master's. It sounds fancy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And I know maybe I could become a professor. But I didn't know what the degree itself entailed. Exactly. I didn't know that it was a research. Yeah. 
I don't I know, didn't know what research <laughs> was. No, no idea. Well, they don't train you. You think you do in your master's, and then no. you go to your PhD, and you're no, like, oh, this is what it looks so like. No, it's so a different ballgame. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, so I applied, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I applied, and I was on the waiting list, mm. and I thought, okay, um, and I only applied to one school. I applied to OISE U of T. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought, because I said, okay, it's that or nothing for me. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'll, I'm just going to stay in New York. I'm happy. And... Uh, yeah, I was on the wait list, and I was kind of hurt. <laughs> yeah. My ego got in the way. Yeah, of course. And I was like, okay, I thought I was a good candidate, but hey. So then I actually uh, signed a lease to a new place because oh, I thought, okay, I'm going to be here. Yeah. I told my principal I'm coming back because he was one of my references, so he knew I had been applying mm-hmm. for school. And then sometime in May, I get a phone call from a professor at at U of T, it says U of T on my phone, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and he says, you know, are any chance you're still interested in pursuing your doctorate in September? And I'm like, no, what? So you had never heard of this, heard well, from this man before? This no, was, okay. I, well, he, I, it's the person I wanted to work with. Oh, I, oh yes, But I had never had any communication. Actually, we had done it at Face to like a uh, Skype interview. Yeah, because you have to establish a supervisor. Yeah, so, but I hadn't had any communication hmm. after that. So then I thought, okay, and then he said, because we'd like to offer you a spot and I was like oh no <laughs> so yeah just in the like that one phone call kind of changed everything and then I packed up my life in New York within a few like two months and I moved back to Toronto and I pursued my doctorate degree and um, had an amazing amazing experience um, I want to go back to sure. your teaching in New York oh, because yeah. I, you were talking a lot about having a bit of regret not living in the community and I yeah. have a feeling that it's because of what you've learned through your master's and your PhD yeah. research yeah. Um, about how to involve the community inside the classroom. And so I do know that when you were teaching in New York, it was during the stop and frisk. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so could you just talk a bit more about that and how you incorporated students' lived experiences in the classroom? Sure. Yeah. So I think... I think it was 2008 was the time when the stop and frisk policy was was in place where police were allowed to randomly uh, select people who they thought looked quote-unquote suspicious Mm. to search them, basically, to frisk them. And so, like I said, I commuted in uh, to, to the Bronx, so I took the subway into work every single day, and when I'd come out at my station there would be a table with, you know, anywhere from two to four police officers and usually one to two dogs. And the policy from when I was there was probably there for at least a year, if not maybe a year and a half. And I walked by there every day, never getting stopped. Mm -hmm. And I would see, you know, young men, usually young black men, getting randomly stopped. And their backpacks would be, the contents of their backpacks would be emptied onto the table. Their pockets would have to be turned inside out. So that was happening. And I just remember um, two of my students coming in and just, you know, settling in the classroom and being really upset and and not knowing what was going on and I remember them being really upset and I said you know what's happened and they told me that they they also commuted from a few stations down and that they had been stopped in frisk and it wasn't the first time and they're like they they knew that something didn't feel right but they didn't know that there was actually anything wrong Mm -hmm. so you know fast forward a bit and that the stop and frisk was actually deemed unconstitutional um, and because it disproportionately targeted um, young men of color but in that time, I thought, okay, um, we're supposed to have, I think it must have been October or something, but like later in the year, we're supposed to have a unit on civics mm. and looking at the Constitution and the amendment. So I thought, why not look at that now? 
Um, so it, it kind of prompted a really great conversation in, in around what is it, first understanding the Constitution and then having issues that students felt was really important to them and then looking at it and doing some work. So one of them was around stop and frisk. Mm. Other topics that came up in the classroom were um, Facebook in the classroom. Like using Facebook in the classroom and um, uh, gun policy. Oh, mm. right. So, big, and the students chose these topics. As, the students chose these topics okay. as things that they wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. So their their task was to take this issue that was personal to them, mm-hmm. and we we all learned and understood like sort of the history of the Constitution and the amendments, and then we'd find they we are all responsible for looking for two articles in the last like five years that that supported um, what their their piece was and then they had to write a persuasive letter to our local congress person which was uh, Jose Serrano okay. so through their investigation so uh, with the stop and frisk they actually realized that what was happening to them was unconstitutional that if if somebody was to search somebody's personal contents they would need a warrant and they would need some reason they would need some grounds for suspicion right but they realized they didn't have any of that that they were just being randomly selected because and they saw and I told them I had never been mm-hmm. right and they and they so they knew that so there was something in that moment when we we could discover it as a class that our their anger was from a very valid place mm-hmm. that they were feeling violated and it was actually um, a valid feeling so what can we do now so you know t- we and I was kind of because I had move this unit up so much further I hadn't really planned it yeah so we kind of <laughs> you know I can be honest I yeah. hadn't really planned it but I thought okay like I know I can make this fit in the curriculum mm-hmm. right like I know that this is a writing intensive course I know I can make this work but I didn't know the, the congress person before mm-hmm. this so we would find it we found out together right we found out who to write to we found out should we write to uh, we decided together as a class, should we write to multiple Congress people, like because some of our students lived in other districts, or should we just write to this one? Yeah. We decided, okay, let's just write to this one. So he's flooded with all these letters, right? <laughs> and he's so feel- each student wrote an individual letter. Each student wrote individual. Oh, some of them were in Paris, okay, but some of them were in Paris and some, but probably from our class, like eighteen letters went out, uh-huh. right? You know, they learned so much, and I, I remember one of our students, he, um, who the one who was angry about the stop and frisk, he went on and. He actually, you know, was telling other students in other classes about this. Like, did you actually know that what's happening to us is unconstitutional? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it did was you? because it's like we feel angry and we yeah. feel we're walking into in the morning, but the, there's something behind this, right? So, and we, what a terrible way to enter school in the morning. Everyone knows how tough it is to wake up in the morning and enter school or work and to have that happen before you even start your day. Yeah. I mean, it was part of that that time of... And they're um, young. That's young. 12 years old and already sort of seen as through like a criminal lens or something, right? Oh, there's another thing I can tell you with our school that was terrible. (laughs) We used to have this pep talk, and I'm using air quotations Mm -hmm. right now, at the beginning of school year every year, which our principal or somebody or the vice principal would come in and talk about... talk about this stuff which was so to me wild I can't believe this was even allowed but basically saying that when urban planners uh, planned for jail cells they looked at grade four to six reading levels because reading levels and like language arts grades were or like levels were the number one indicator of how many jail cells would be needed 15 years later so if you lack literacy then you will be in jail so don't be part of that statistic no that was the pep talk 
that's the environment, like the administration that, you know, I came from. So that's such an incredible example of what you did of how to actually engage students inside the classroom and get them amped up about what they're learning. You know, engagement is, seems to be such a, a large issue for educators, and I, I think, I mean, it's not simple. What you did isn't easy, and it's certainly controversial, right? It's, it's tough to balance that line. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, often I used, to, I used to hear from teachers that, you know, my students are not engaged, they're not motivated, but, you know, the more I've thought about that, I think about what opportunities as, as educators are we designing mm-hmm. for students to engage in learning in a, in a relevant and responsive and meaningful way. Yeah. Because students by nature are engaged, for right? Because sure. they're engaged in their, you know, their iPads or their phones, they're engaged in with their friends. It's not like they're not interested. It's how does our learning reflect that? And how does our, how does our learning opportunities reflect that? Yeah. So... I didn't know what I was doing, which almost served as like something great because you know I was really honest with them. I said, you know, also I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm not so familiar with the Constitution, so we kind of learned it together. And maybe that was a big part was that we kind of um, there was like a trust mm. across, you know, yeah. our our room. And I actually taught with one, one of my good friends. We were co-teachers. We became good friends after uh, we were co-teachers. Yeah. So, you know, we were always on the same page. And he was a born and raised um, New Yorker from the Bronx. Mm. Um, and we were always on the same page in terms of, like, what curriculum felt uh, good and what curriculum we, we just we felt uncomfortable with. Mm. Like, this does not feel like the appro- – like, this does not feel like this is going to do anything for our students or it does yeah. not feel, like, even appropriate to teach. Like, it just seems so – uh, biased and you know um, one-sided yeah so yeah that was a, a really great example we actually got letters back from the Congress okay. person which was really cool students were really really excited <laughs> did he individually write back to each student or um, most students I'm trying to think now I can't remember yeah. if he wrote back individually if he wrote back on each issue but I know there was multiple letters I don't know if there was one per but okay. he wrote, might have written back on each issue and I think it was nothing like groundbreaking what he said. <laughs> but the probably po- not. No, yeah. but the point was that you can be engaged civically. And yeah, you and you can, have power. And yeah, and you do have power, and that you know you're in, you're you're being listened to when you organize your thoughts mm-hmm. and you you communicate them in the in this in this way, right? There's like some because they cited like past you know precedents in these cases, and they you know they they did a good, really good job. And I remember on the, our outside, we had like a bulletin board outside of our classroom, so we put like the assignment description that we wrote together and then mm-hmm. we put the the letters some of our letters we wrote to the congressperson and then the response Amazing. and people were really proud like it was just yeah. like so cool that we actually if it made learning feel like real like oh this is not just for this classroom or for this building this yes. is for real life and something I'll tell you about one of my students who wrote about gun policy which I of course coming from like a very liberal background Mm -hmm. and growing up in a safe suburb was like of course stricter gun laws and I just remember reading his letter and like getting goosebumps and he was like you know he wrote to the congressperson you know I don't know if you so I'm paraphrasing here but like Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have but you probably don't know what it's like to grow up in the hood and where you hear gunshots flying all the time and we need it just to stay alive like as a form of safety Mm -hmm. and I thought because you know the other people are going to have it whether it's legal or not legal yeah so it's just a matter of survival at that point and so if you take away if you make it so strict then you're making it us it harder for us to survive right and i thought 
Wow, what an incredibly profound (laughs) letter because I never thought about it like that. I was so black and white about the issue. And I I mean, I grew up in Canada also, in Ottawa, in in the country, and so this hasn't been an issue necessarily in that space. But when I went to Lebanon one summer with my sisters and my mom, there was multiple days when we were in Beirut, and there were car bombs going off and people shooting each other in the streets, and it was so, so, so normal that everyone was like, all right, so today we're not going to put our heads above the window. And so we would just kind of crawl around the floor on those days, but it was so normal. Like, there was no fear. And, I mean, my cousins and my aunts didn't have weapons in the house, but in that moment I could understand if I needed to go get groceries, of course, in that moment to protect myself, I would need something. Right. And so it's um, it's horrific that people live that every day, every day. And to understand the politics of the people who are actually living it, I think, is so important. Well, I think recognizing that is really important because then it really informs the type of pedagogy you bring into those classrooms, yeah. right? And that's really what I'm interested in now is, like, understanding pedagogies that are culturally responsive and sustaining. Like, how do we, like, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. We also talked about, you know, like, the, um, we did, like, an entire, like, long project on the indigenous people of, um, Haiti and Dominican Republic Mm. where a lot of my students were from which to me was like really tied to their roots because they had learned over and over again about Christopher Columbus as some you know hero or something so I think being understanding the context which you which in which our students are living day in and day out will and understanding the I guess like the I guess like the power of culturally sustaining and relevant practices as well as like trauma informed like a lot of our students like even though they don't live in active like day-to-day like fear of, you know, it's just become quote-unquote normal to them. There's a lot of trauma in that, right? And hearing bullets at mm-hmm. night or having, you know, family family members, like, incarcerated or things like that. Like, that our, our practices should be sensitive, just like how, you know, we've seen a big rise of UDL, like Universal Design for Learning, how it's, it's not just good for students with cognitive or physical differences. It's good for everybody, yeah. right? Um, just same with culturally sustaining or trauma-informed pedagogies because some traumas are more obvious and some are less. Mm-hmm. We don't know necessarily what's going on, but we know um, that those types of practices and pedagogies are really um, important for all. And that's what I'm really interested in now mm-hmm. is preparing my students to develop the, that tool, that sort of repertoire of teaching of how to understand, how to feel comfortable as a teacher to switch it up like that, yeah. to see what's happening in the, in the world outside and say, okay, I feel confident enough as an educator to not stick to this preset unit plan I had for this month, mm-hmm. but I'm going to switch it because it's going to be much more connected to my students' Absolutely. lives, right? Yeah, it's far, far more effective. Yeah, I'm curious now because I know from what I understand, um, the motivation for doing a PhD was very much about what you learned mm-hmm. in New York. And so I'm, I'm just wondering how you achieve that balance of incorporating the digital and the critical inside the classroom. So what have been some of the benefits and also some of the challenges? Because I know that there are a lot of educators really attempting to incorporate both of those things in their class but there's not a lot of instruction or policy to support it mm-hmm. and so if there's anything any kind of light that you can shed on it or tips that you can provide for teachers who are trying but really struggling to succeed yeah I think that the um, that is like a, a key focus in my class you know I think people often don't tell me in my my course where I teach like a literacy methods course which is uh, for pre-service teachers and they were always telling me in week three or four, this is not at all what we were expecting. Mm-hmm. They said they were expecting how to do lesson plans that have to do with the language arts curriculum. I said, well, that's one part. Mm-hmm. But to me, the foundation is so much more important because like, how do you understand and conceptualize teaching and learning? And how, do you underst- how have you come to understand literacy? And 
Um, I want to introduce things and ideas to you that actually um, push the boundaries of that. Because a lot of students will say, okay, well, I thought literacy was reading or writing, or I thought maybe it was reading, writing, and maybe like visual representation mm -hmm. or something, but what is it really? So we look at understanding literacy as essentially a meaning-making practice. That, and it, when we say meaning-making, is in that it has to be a context-specific practice then, right? Mm -hmm. So what is meaningful in that space to survive and thrive might be very different from space to space. Mm -hmm. And how do we actually recognize those literacies and how do we honor them in the classroom? Because our students are engaged in meaning-making practices all the time. So to come and tell them that, no, you're actually not very advanced in literacy, you're actually way behind, is is demoralizing to students, right? Because yes. although they might not be able, they might not be exceptional readers, they might be engaged in meaning-making practices in multiple other ways. They might be excellent at reading maps, mm -hmm. okay, for example, because yeah. they've been taking the subway their whole lives. But that that is not brought into the classroom. And often what uh, a big aha moment for the student, for my student teachers is we have all these content, co we have these curricular competencies and these, these ideas around, um, you know, like co content and understanding content. But the only way we often let our students demonstrate to us that they understand the content is through writing. And while writing is, of course, important and a skill you want to be always improving, it's not, it doesn't mean that they don't understand the content. You're just giving them one way and one avenue in which to represent, represent that. Yeah. So uh, right away, if you have students who are not strong writers, you're telling them and you're only giving them opportunities to write to demonstrate their knowledge, you're automatically setting them behind perpetuating mm. some sort of like inequity, right? So how are you cognitive, like how are you aware of that? And then what opportunities are you pre pre presenting um, your students for them to demonstrate their, their knowledge in multiple ways. So do you give your students the option for yeah. every okay. So students have that's good advice. Yeah, tons of options around that. And that's not to say that um, that writing is not important. You're cultivating those academic literacies at the same time, mm -hmm. but you're not telling students that they don't know stuff. Yeah, They know a lot, yeah. right? So for example, with my student teachers now, I have, I'm teaching a course um, called Education 400, which is the foundational and historical perspectives of education. Mm. And they're out doing observations in the districts for two weeks. That's why I'm not teaching for these two weeks. Okay. So they have to come back. They have these guiding prompts in different headings, and they are have to come back and reflect uh, their learning in, in any way. So I have, uh, they've been checking in with me to, to, to just run it by me. Mm. I have a student doing a snakes and ladders. It is so good. It, <laughs> it integrates our readings and observations and photos. Mm. It's so cool. I have somebody else doing um, um, using pictograph, I think that's what it's called, yeah. you, doing like a graphic mm. novel. I have another student doing, I have two students doing a podcast together talking about it. So the format is really open. And I also wanted to give them that format. I said, because I'm not looking at the format in which you're, I'm just looking at, okay, how did you um, respond to these prompts? It's the content. It's, it's the, the content. Prompts, yeah. I want you to try something that's out of your comfort zone. Try something you always wanted to try, but trust me, you're not going to be graded based yeah, on low stakes environment. Exactly. This is low stakes. This is for you to just try this out. So some students that I've always wanted to try a podcast, I'm going to do it. And they're mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm like, I don't care if the sound is crappy. Like, it's yeah. okay. Just try it out. So you start to 
include those in your classrooms. That's the, the, the whole point. So people have come up with the most incredible things. Like I've had uh, one student's writing a children's book. Oh, that's really yeah. nice. Yeah, <laughs> just tons of different things. I want to come back are, into your classroom. I yeah, know, invite it's me back. so fun. So yeah, like that's my advice is like kind of question like what opportunities am I giving students to demonstrate what they know? Yeah. And is it, am I conflating that with how how good of a writer they are, exactly. right? And to be a little bit looser with the assessment. I think that a lot of educators are really attached to assessment. And so sometimes we do have to detach ourselves from that if we want our students to grow. And assessment is important, but people don't understand. Like I, I think... Formative assessment can mm. go a long way, and peer assessment also self assessment. Yeah, self assessment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But but the idea is like even with writing, like it's overwhelming to tell students all the things that are wrong with them. And I think we often as people who grew up in the '80s or the '90s, like we would get that paperback with mm. the red writing all over it, and that's we know from research that's not a really productive way to help somebody. It's overwhelming for yeah, students. It doesn't to encourage see. learning. No. no, it's better to focus on one or two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make it manageable. Make it, you know, something they can handle, and that there's there's a sense of pride and accomplishment, yeah. not a paper full of red marks. Where, and I, I even as a professor now, I struggle like to not like make every single like correction on my students' paper. Well, because we're so used to doing that to yeah, ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, okay, no, what? Take what, a step back. Yeah. yeah. What are like two pieces of constructive criticism I can give that they can actually take and, and implement in their next Absolutely. piece? Right, and not yeah. stunt their growth. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difficult balance. Yeah. Um, I think you've achieved it, though. I've learned so much really? from you over the past couple of years. <laughs> so, so much. And I appreciate your mentorship. And, you know, oh, so yeah. nice. <laughs> so I appreciate you so much. And I just, I really believe in what you're doing. And I think that you're making a really large impact. And I've seen the impact. And um, I'm just excited to know that there are educators like you oh, teaching other possible teachers <laughs> in the future. Uh, yeah, I think it's the way forward. And I hope that people listening um, take your advice to heart. Um, before I let you go, though, yeah. I want to do a little bit of a rapid fire sure. film the blanks with you. I guess I didn't send these to you ahead of time. No, so a bit of a... I'm just looking at these right now. No, don't prepare too much. Okay. Okay, the first one. The most embarrassing song on my playlist. Well, I don't think this is embarrassing, but people say they feel embarrassed for me. <laughs> I love Dolly Parton. That's not embarrassing. Okay, Jolene. That, yeah, Jolene, is... 9 to 5. Like, I think that's... People always, like, look, like, double... And I love Celine Dion. Oh, that is not embarrassing. Right? Have I told you about my love for Celine? No. Oh, my gosh. When I was a kid, I literally recorded a tape and sent it to her with a letter. I was so obsessed with her. I took singing lessons. Like, I went on stage and sang My Heart Will Go On. Really? Like, she was my first concert. Is her Vegas residency still happening? I always wanted to go she's to She's doing that. a tour now. She's coming to Vancouver. Oh, really? Do you want to go together? Yeah. I would love to. I <laughs> love Celine Dion. I've been, I've been literally waiting for someone to tell me out loud so that I don't feel embarrassed first. No, I love her. her she's like a powerhouse. Her she's voice incredible. is so incredible. I think the people I grew up with were more into like hip-hop and R&B. Yeah. So they would be like, what are you playing? And I'd be like, you know what? I love Celine and I love Dolly, all right? And so I guess for those people, it was like yeah. they were embarrassed for me. But whatever. But I'm proud of I'm not embarrassed. Yeah. yeah, I'm on board with you. Okay. I want to learn more about oh recently I've really been wanting to learn um just more about cooking and like really like healthy like plant-based like Ayurvedic cooking that really Mm. serves to like heal and serve your body like my specific body constitution absolutely okay yeah um if I had a magic power it would be oh to travel in a magic bubble anywhere I wanted Okay. And to like, yeah, not have to pay speed. for airfare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love getting out into new spaces and I just, yeah, if it was free, I would go all the time. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. That's a great one. I haven't heard <laughs> that one before. Um, something I'm working on that no one would expect me to be working on. Hmm. I don't know if I'm specifically working on it. It's like a cope thing, but I guess like none of my colleagues would know about this. It's <laughs> like my husband is a DJ and he's kind of like really 
um, reviving his DJ career right now. <laughs> like he has these monthly mixtapes, and I feel like I'm just really part of that. Oh. Like you know, like I listen to them and I give him feedback and I help him with his cover art, and it's been really, really great. Like people are really receptive to it. He's been throwing a lot of parties in Vancouver, so I feel like that's my other half. Is like if you come into my house, there's always extremely loud music playing. Yeah, I love that though. <laughs> that's how I want my home to be all the time. <laughs> okay, and the last one is one thing we can do to spread light online. Oh my gosh, I don't know, like disable the comment section? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know what we can do. So one thing we can do to spread light online. I know, it's a tough one. I guess really lift up the people who are doing like a lot of great work. Uh, so one of my actual assignments in my other courses is um, how to engage with so we, we read a lot of scholars, obviously, but I always go, I always check to see if they're active on Twitter. Mm. And if they are, I have my students go and read some of their Twitter threads oh. and then be part of that conversation. That's really so nice. So actually contribute and be and understand um, intellectual, uh, not, sorry, not intellectuals, academics <laughs> uh, outside of the ac- academy and how they are engaging. Um, and also to see who they're in conversation with, because obviously uh, often they're in conversation with people who are like, politicians or celebrities or things mm-hmm. like that and just seeing sort of and and you know like everyday people too so it's like how can we be part of that dialogue um i had students read an article by eve tuck you know um, i do know eve yeah. Tuck, yeah and she was it was great to see because uh she had read written something amazing just about you know ethics around doing research with indigenous communities mm-hmm. and how it's become almost like easily fundable mm-hmm. but with that access to funds the ethics has you know like in terms of who's collecting data how are we making sure we're not perpetuating this idea of like the colonial gaze yeah. getting like publications out of it what yes. is the reciprocity in this yeah. right so she wrote something and then Mark Lamont Hill who I follow from the US who has like a show on BUT and is also a professor mm. you know was part of that and then his circle got in, in, um, into that sort of conversation and it was cool to see the connections happening in that thread um, just from a tweet a so good I idea. think yeah like even just like inviting my students to see that and maybe participate in that. I'm really bad with Twitter. I'm trying to to be part of it, but I don't know. It's a bit of a t- vulnerable space. Too. It is vulnerable. So don't. I go mixed. I'm like in between because I don't want to become irrelevant right. and not understand what's happening mm-hmm. and how and how communications have patterns are changing. I want to be part of it. I don't want to just like observe it. Yeah. I want to engage in it. But then it feels like very like sometimes you feel very like like very self-indulgent. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, like yeah. yeah. I'm just like, what is the point of this? Yeah. So I'm always like, in between right and then I'm also very aware of that idea of like the connections to mental health and like people always showing like the highlight reel but I'm like but do we expect people to show things that are when they're really vulnerable you can't demand that no but just at least knowing that what you see is only a small part of anybody's story exactly right but it's also just important to think about what you're posting online the impact that you're making I've said this a million times but just think about my nieces and how it might impact them the things they say to me sometimes I'm like I didn't realize that this would have made a big impact on you like my one niece was saying she had a freckle that made her really insecure and then one day we were out in our bathing suits together and she realized I had the same freckle and like she completely lost like all insecurity about it because I didn't pay mind to it like little things like that oh my god yeah that's so sweet oh and they're so perceptive like I remember my husband had posted um, my niece 
they're not usually like their parents don't put them on social media at all but then he has permission he's like oh because she was he taught her like a bit of DJing oh, and she good. had t- gone to DJ camp hmm. so she had done like a little mix so that is so amazing. it's so cute and she yeah. was like seven or six oh. or seven at the time it was like a few years ago and then he put it on um, I think it was Instagram or something and it was like a video and then she just every hour we were on a family trip how many views has it gotten? Yeah. How many views? And I'm like, how does she even know that, what that means. more views mean something good? And she became obsessed for, you know, for a little while about that. And I said, okay, this is why yeah. she needs to stay far away. There's no reason a seven-year-old needs to know how many views they have. <laughs> no, you're right. It's, it's, it's a bit young. Yeah. Yeah, we have so much more to talk about, okay, but unfortunately we've run out of time. All right, thank um, you so much. This was so fun. It was so fun. Thanks so much. <laughs>